0: Good morning, our reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, we're reading from verse 24 down to the end of the chapter, so if you have your Bibles there, be good to follow on. Now this is Jesus speaking to his disciples before he sends them out. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters, If the head of the household is called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. If anyone who loves their father or mother more than me, sorry, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Well, good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to Sam's
1: and others. Uh, it's great to be with you as we continue in this series in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you are new or visiting, my name's Ron. I'm one of the pastors here Uh, But let's um, pray now, ask that God will help us as we look at this passage, um, that we might uh, be strengthened in our understanding and respond rightly to what God is laying before us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather as your people this morning. We thank you for a beautiful day outside that reminds us of your power in creation. But we thank you also that we see your power in salvation and that as we Uh, look at Jesus and his work. We're reminded of uh, your work to save, but also the work then of your people to respond to you rightly. And we pray as we see the challenge that Jesus lays down this morning, that you might uh, grant us uh, a willingness uh, to submit to his lordship and to respond rightly to him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, The story is told of two brothers uh, who were well known in their hometown for their crooked business dealings and their underworld connections. They were as mean and as cold-blooded as you could imagine and eventually one of the brothers died and the surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a funeral fit for a king. And so he called the funeral home and made all the arrangements, and then he called the town's minister and made him an offer. He said, I'll give you $10,000 to put that new roof on the church if in eulogising my brother you will call him a saint. You should agree to my kind offer if you know what is good for you. (laughs) The minister agreed. The whole town turned out for the funeral, and the minister began the service this way. The man you see in the coffin was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, and a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes, careers, and lives of countless people in this city, many of whom are here today. This man did every dirty, rotten thing you could think of. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Now, I think this story, uh, as humorous as it is, shows that fear of God should trump fear of man. Fear of God is not a phrase in the Bible that is meant to conjure up an image of a child kind of cowering before an angry parent. That is not God's position before us. Rather a person is rightly to show awe and reverence toward their judge and their maker. But, of course, fearing God can be easier to say than to do when we face opposition, when people are threatening us because of our faith, or when temptation is put before us from people around us. In such moments, people often become very big in our mind and God becomes small. So the question that I want us to consider today is how are we to rightly fear God? How are we to rightly fear God? Three answers to that question this morning. First answer is this, by having an eternal perspective. We rightly fear God by having an eternal perspective. So notice again what is stated in verses 26 to 31. Jesus says, so do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. Notice here, to begin with, Jesus reminds the disciples in verse 26 that a day will come when the inner life of people will be exposed. Nothing that is hidden now will not be made known on the judgment day. And what is told in the dark or whispered in the ear is, in the first instance, relating to Jesus' instructions to the disciples to hold out the good news, but it also points to God's omniscience. He knows every word we will utter in any location. We might add even our thoughts, as Scripture makes clear elsewhere. Because in the clear daylight of Judgment Day, hidden or concealed things will be made known. And so the disciples should speak the truth of the gospel, whatever the cost, because they know on that last day they will be vindicated. Elsewhere in scripture we read in Hebrews 4 verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The truth will eventually be known. And opposition to Christ will be exposed and punished. But the important thing, I think, in this opening section is to consider the welfare of your soul. Did you notice that? Jesus discussed the issue of whom to fear because there would soon come a time when the world's rejection of him would lead to the rejection of those who identified with him those first disciples and continuing to today. In Matthew's account, uh, the Pharisees' first plot to kill Jesus in a couple of chapters in chapter 12. And so Jesus tells his disciples here in chapter 10 not to fear those who can kill the body, for they can't do any further harm. I think that strikes us um, as a, a statement that we can perhaps struggle with to begin with, but he's contrasting it, isn't it? We often fear death but we shouldn't as God's people. And so he says what we should be doing is fearing God, the one who has the power to condemn eternally. To fear the multitude and to turn away from God is to make the wrong choice. That's one that has just immediate consequences. There are far more temporary, uh, far more eternal consequences rather in rejecting God. And so we need to be prepared to stand before God Almighty, who knows everything and who will judge the living and the dead, the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In verses 29 to 31, Jesus reassures his disciples, because I think on the back of that heavy word to us, we can think, well, um, standing up for Jesus, um, that's a big cost. But then there's a reassurance here, isn't there, that, Though uh, the first disciples' lives might not be valued by those who would persecute them, they are precious in God the Father's sight. If sparrows are not forgotten by God, then his disciples can be assured that the Father will care for them and he'll care for us. And the extent of this care is expressed by the truth that God knows even the numbers of hairs on our head. And so I think these verses provide the necessary reassurance that we can be courageous, unmoved by others' opinions and even persecution that might come. Because, you see, to fear God means not only to be in awe of his power and to revere his authority, but also to trust his care, not to worry about how others react to us. It means not going along with popular opinion to avoid rejection. Because to give in to the fear of people is to dishonour God. And so as we apply this first point to ourselves, what we need to do is to have an eternal perspective that the gospel brings. Uh, You know, We need to feel the true weight of the eternal realities of heaven and hell. This is where everyone's heading to, one or the other. We have to be aware of the absolute commitment of God to judge all people. No one will escape that All will be judged. And then if we understand these things, the threats of people, the fear of not being accepted, these things will mean nothing in comparison to eternal separation from God and therefore all that is good. As Timothy Keller, uh, the former American pastor and author, has noted, uh, without the gospel, we're motivated through all sorts of awful fear and pride Unless you believe the gospel, he writes, everything you do will be driven either by pride or fear of people. You ever thought about that? Perhaps we don't experience such fear in Australia, uh, except you know maybe some marginalising at work or some distancing from the neighbours who don't want to chat to us any longer. But it's a daily challenge elsewhere in the world. Open Doors estimates that 365 million Christians face intimidation, prison, even death for their faith this year. 365 million. 5,000 people were killed last year for their faith in Christ. One in seven Christians worldwide are persecuted for their faith. If you're in Africa, that goes down to one in five What does it look like to fear God and not people when the stakes are really high? You may remember the story story of Asia Bibi, uh, a Christian woman who spent eight years on death row after being convicted of blasphemy in Pakistan. Uh, She was a farm labourer and she was sentenced to death in 2010 in what swiftly became Pakistan's most infamous blasphemy case. She'd been accused by Muslim villagers that she was working with of insulting the Prophet Muhammad in a row over a cup of water that she drank. She was severely beaten and imprisoned even before she got to have a trial, but she always insisted on her innocence. Of course, blasphemy is a highly inflammatory issue in Pakistan where even unproven accusations about insulting Islam or Muhammad can spark lynchings. Human rights activists actually say that in that country, blasphemy charges are often used to settle personal scores. If you want to take somebody out, just accuse them of blasphemy. After the Supreme Court surprisingly overturned Bibi's conviction in 2018, after she'd been sitting on death row for eight years, cities across Pakistan were actually paralysed because there were massive demonstrations, violent demonstrations with enraged extremists calling for her lynching or her beheading. And in an effort to actually stop violence in his country, the Prime Minister at the time, Imran Khan, uh, struck a deal allowing a petition to go to the Supreme Court to appeal against the judgment. But um, to their credit, the Supreme Court in January of 29 rejected the challenge to their ruling, and it was thought that finally Bibi would be free after nearly nine years of all this, that she would be able to join her children who'd been sent away or given asylum in Canada. But no, she was um, kept under arrest for another four months The government said it was for her own protection that they did that because a leading Muslim cleric had come out and offered 500,000 Pakistan rupees for anyone who could kill her. Well, eventually she was released in May and she joined her family in Canada. But I tell you, there is an example of someone who feared God over fearing people whose very life hung in the balance for nine years. Incredible fortitude and trust. Fear God, fear people. Which brings me to a second answer to our question of how to rightly fear God. Secondly, by acknowledging Jesus publicly. How do we rightly fear God? by acknowledging Jesus publicly. Have a look again at verses 32 to 36. Jesus says, "'Whoever acknowledges me before others, "'I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. "'But whoever disowns me before others, "'I will disown before my Father in heaven. "'Do not suppose that I come to bring peace to the earth. "'I did not come to bring peace, but a sword.'" For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. I think these words are striking because we don't expect almost to hear them on the lips of Jesus. But Jesus here is applying the idea of rightly fearing God and explaining what this will mean to his disciples as they face persecution from government authorities but even from their own family members. Notice in verses 32 and 33, it involved confessing one's allegiance to Christ, sticking up for Jesus, if you like. And the warning is that if his disciples disown him, then he will disown them. That's high stakes, isn't it? The final judgment is again in view. And the point is that rightly fearing God will mean that we don't fear human opposition. We're going to stand up for Jesus, whatever suffering might follow. And in verses 34 and 35 that follow, Jesus talked about the different responses to him and the impact that that would have even on families, that even family members would be against each other because of how they responded to Jesus in different ways. He alludes to Micah 7, verse 6. Did you notice it's indented in your Bibles? This is a quote from the Old Testament from the prophet Micah in chapter 7, verse 6, where the same three divisions of father versus son, mother versus daughter, mother-in-law versus daughter-in-law are listed. But the context in Micah is actually about God's judgment coming on his people because of their idolatry, because of the social injustice that's going on in the nation of Israel. But the division in the family that Jesus is speaking about here is due to the varying responses to his ministry. But it's the same divided outcome that he's pointing to. That's why he quotes this passage. You know, not only is there going to be outside persecution from authorities, from religious leaders in Israel for Christ's followers, but there's actually going to be consequences for family bonds. There's going to be a fight within, if you like. And this message was pretty confronting to Jewish people who have very strong family bonds, who value community cohesion as above almost everything else. But it's pretty confronting for us as well, right? As we apply this to ourselves today, we have to acknowledge that this theme of Jesus dividing people is actually one that runs right through the New Testament. Have a look at what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. Quite memorably, he says in verse 15 and 16, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. The message brings division. And the reason it does is because Jesus doesn't allow for fence sitters. Have you noticed that? He's always seeking to produce a black and white response. You either submit to Jesus as Lord or you reject him. Whether you try and ignore him or you're really angry and you're shaking his, your fist in his face, as it were, it doesn't make any difference. You're either for or against. And that's going to bring reaction from people, Right. And he still brings salvation and impending judgment today as people respond to him positively and negatively as you share your faith with others and they respond positively and negatively. And I think many of you will know the pain of family division on this point. Many of you have shared with me actually the heartache of children or grandchildren who are not believers. Many of you know the disappointment of lost friendships where your faith in Jesus has meant that ones once close to you have withdrawn. We need to realise that however hard we might find such divisions, many believers, again, from other cultures or religious backgrounds face these hurts regularly and they can find themselves cut off completely from their family. Let me give you an example from a man who used to be in our church here. Um, Those from a Muslim background often find such divisions are very final. Uh, I had the privilege about 15 years ago now to baptise a man from the Middle East up in our old building in Smith Street. Um, There was some excellent witnessing by Colin Chamberlain and others that led this man to come to faith. He was studying at the university. But he was surrounded by Muslim friends that were observing his every movement because they could see that perhaps he was interested in Christian things. And so there was threats towards him or they would come round and spend a long time at his house so that he couldn't go to other places. it would always turn up on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so we had his baptism privately at the church building. But before he was baptised, he had the courage to share his decision to become a follower of Jesus with his wife. He was married with two children who were back in the Middle East. He shared with her the decision. She was initially um, neutral or sounding okay with that. But then when he completed his master's degree here and needed to return home, um, she refused to speak to him. She placed him in another room in the house She eventually divorced him. Her family were very high up in the regime of that country and for him to choose to go from Muslim to Christian, there were threats on his life. Eventually, yeah, they were divorced. He's lost all contact with his children. He finds it hard to have friendship in his own country because he can't trust anyone. He's paid a high price for following Jesus. The gospel brings division between friends, between family members, even in marriages. But Jesus wants to say, count the cost. Following me is worth it. Eternal realities hang in the balance. Which brings me to a third and final answer. Third reason as to how to fear God rightly is by living for Jesus and dying to self, by living for Jesus and dying to self. Notice how Jesus reaches a climax in these statements in verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Notice the word that Jesus starts off this statement, whoever. makes the words apply to any would-be disciple, not just the first 12 at that point. And he has a twofold command there in verse 38 Did you notice. Firstly, we are to take up our cross. That means to accept the sentence of death on all personal, worldly ambitions and to pre- replace them with God's ones. Here is the ultimate expression of dying to self. And, of course, the expression is figurative, but it comes from a real physical action, right? The condemned criminal carrying the crossbar of the instrument of his execution through the city streets to the point where he will be killed. We minimise the force of statements like, take up your cross today with sayings like, oh, you know, we've all got our cross to bear, Jesus wasn't talking about minor discomforts. He's speaking about the death of your former life. He's talking about the utmost sacrifice. You know, the parallel passage in Mark's account uses the phrase deny yourself before the phrase take up your cross, which just adds to the picture of renouncing self-rule. As one commentator has written about this part, it is talking about obliterating self as the dominant principle of life in order to make God that principle. And then Jesus says, follow me. That's the second part of the command. It sounds like the easier bit, but it indicates an action or a decision to enter into a complete life of discipleship. The necessity of continuing in it, of continued faithfulness in following Jesus on a daily basis Our old life is gone forever, and we now live totally for Jesus every moment, every day. I've got choices to make, second after second. Am I going to live for Jesus? And Jesus says we need to make that choice because of verse 39. In verse 39 that follows, Jesus gives the reason for this call to radical discipleship. And whoever again makes this principle a universal application And verse 39 is the supreme paradox of Christian discipleship. If a person tries to save his or her life, that is, abandon the way of total self-sacrifice, they will actually lose their life. However, if a person will lose his or her life for Christ, he or she will find it. Jesus is speaking of two kinds of life here. There's physical well-being, if you like, and true existence. The immediate temptation is to look after one's physical well-being above all else. You know, we pursue our personal goals, our comfort. But when that becomes the dominant goal of our existence, if we're just living for self, then true life has actually been forfeited. But the one who loses his life, who lays down his life for Jesus, refers to the person who puts service of Christ above everything else, who devotes his or her life to serving Jesus and other people for Christ's sake. This person finds life, Jesus says, because they realise that the life they previously lived was really not life at all. True life, full and abundant life, is the life of service to our Lord. And Jesus' statement also point to eternal life, obviously. True life comes because it starts now and continues for eternity. But self-interest destroys life even now in the present, let alone in the future. It's funny, isn't it? Our world is on this hunt for self-satisfaction, but it's always looking in the wrong places. And sometimes we even acknowledge that, but we don't know what to do with that in our secular society. In 2008, some medical scientists sought to test the electrical activity in the brains of their volunteers that came along to their testing in order to determine what makes us happy and how sustained that happiness is. The research was filmed for the ABC TV show Catalyst. Interestingly, um, their results indicated that gaining material things had a very short-lived effect on our happiness just evaporated (laughs) in a few hours. While volunteer community service, giving ourselves to others, even meditation reflecting on our life provided prolonged happiness. Here are secular writers and researchers telling us what we should already know from the Bible, that if we live for ourselves in the here and now, we're actually going to be dissatisfied. But if we live to serve others we will find great satisfaction. Their diagnosis was correct, but of course they failed to see that the sustaining motivation to live this way is Jesus. You have to live for him. Well, As we apply these teachings of Jesus to ourselves, it's pretty clear there's no half-baked options when it comes to following him. He doesn't allow for that. There, there is no grey It's clear that the cost of entering Christ's kingdom are real, and if they're real costs, then I need to factor them in. It's no half-hearted decision to follow Jesus. But, of course, it's hard for us to process that, to count the cost, because we live in a society that's pursuing comfort from cradle to the grave, which works against that always. We're always pushing against the flow. To take up your cross and follow Jesus, that's not an appealing invitation in Australian society. To die to your old self, that's the most confronting thing anyone can say. We're all about identity politics today. It's all about gender or what I've achieved or my career or this, that or the other. Jesus says, scrap it all. You have no identity except that which is in me. And such radical discipleship can only be driven by a right fear of God. What would cause me to keep living that way unless I know the end of the story, unless I know what we're all heading toward? It's a reverence. It's an awe towards God where we're not trying to earn acceptance through our performance. We're simply resting in his grace. We're pursuing righteousness that's been enabled by his Holy Spirit. And I want to say to you, if you feel like I have as I've prepared this week, that you're perhaps not quite meeting what God might be expecting of you in this regard, not quite acknowledging Jesus in every situation, standing up for him, remember that we have to be recalling God's grace, the forgiveness that Christ offers. Otherwise, we would just drift into hopeless despair, right? Think about the Apostle Peter Didn't he disown Jesus three times? Jesus said, if you disown me, I'll disown you before my father. But it wasn't a permanent decision, was it, by Peter? He repented of it. Jesus restored him and three times said to him, do you love me, Peter? Christ restores people. He strengthens people to continue to serve. We've all had moments of truth, surely, where we've had to stand up and be counted about something. The question is whether we will fear God or fear people in those moments. We started with the question, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to fear God rightly? And we've seen that we can do this by having an eternal perspective, by acknowledging Jesus publicly and facing whatever costs come with that, including even family rejection. And then thirdly, we're to live totally for Jesus and die to self. May God help us to repent where we need to, to be renewed in the gospel and to go on in his fear and his strength. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that the call to follow Jesus is no small thing. in and of ourselves we're not capable of doing this it is only by the work of your spirit only by the help of your grace only by your continued forgiveness and strengthening that we can live in such a manner and so we pray for your help this morning help us to be those who are seeking to live for jesus not just fit him in around what we're doing for ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.